Welcome to Zero Brightness, a podcast about horror video games. I'm musician and nerd James Woodard, stationed in San Antonio, Texas, and I'm joined by my friend and fellow musician Ali Jafar, all the way from Minneapolis, Minnesota. On this episode, we will be exploring two games that leverage and invoke nostalgia in their aesthetic and gameplay design choices, The Glass Staircase and Stories Untold. Both games lean on nostalgia heavily, but are they successful at actually being good games? We also divert course as Ali laments his disastrous breakup with Dark Souls 1, and we take a hard look at today's current AAA gaming industry and speculate if it's even worth it at this point, or whether we should just burn it all down. Because we're both musicians, which means we both might be stupid, but hey, maybe that's what the title means. You do not know, and there's only one way for you, the listener, to find out. Today's episode is brought to you by Nostalgia, and we are talking about games that use nostalgia as a design element and maybe a guiding principle. Sure. I mean, nostalgia's hot right now. So hot right now. People our age, the 90s was kind of like our heyday, and now that people our age are adults and can afford things it's time to cash in on all that nostalgia yeah absolutely i also feel like as we move towards our inevitable terrible future we start to get more and more rosy about the past and we want to remember it sure right and i also think too that the age we are we are really the target market for nostalgia because like we're just old enough to remember stuff before you had internet and computers at home and all that but mm-hmm. we also kind of grew up with it so we remember a little bit how it was and so we're like the thirstiest and it's like for people older than us there's this kind of awful false nostalgia like make america great again bullshit and then <laughs> For people younger than us, it almost feels like they have this doomed romance with the past because they didn't get to experience it, and they're just like, oh, I love it, you know? But they have no yeah. idea what, what the, that is. I mean, when I was a high school teacher, uh, I had a bunch of kids, you know, like 14, 15, 16, like nostalgic for 90s stuff and 80s stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would love Super Nintendo games and NES games and things like that, or like yeah. uh, Nicktoons, things like that. And I was like, you guys, you guys weren't even there, but still... I don't know if they picked it up from their parents or, uh, I don't know. I think it's that general feeling that we're just circling the drain. Uh, (laughs) So like one of my favorite manga ever is, um, Phoenix by Mm -hmm. Osamu Tezuka and Phoenix is a, is a really long series of novels, but there's one that's just called the future. And, I talk about this all the time. I'm sure if like any of my friends are listening to this, they're like, oh my God, shut the fuck up. But there's this panel in that comic where he's describing a future Earth society. Basically, the environment's ravaged. People live underground in these big complexes that look like malls, right? Yeah. And like life, it takes so much to support life that everyone basically just like, you know, doesn't have to work or do anything. They just live in these underground tunnels. Like their life is just supported by their ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And because of that, people develop all these weird leisure habits. And one of them is just kind of cosplay, but cosplay of historical past. And so there's mm-hmm. this great shot of an escalator just full of people all dressed as different eras in time. And 
I love it because it's just that's exactly what it is. Is it's just this kind of cosplay of the past because the future you live in or the present you live in is fucking terrible. I feel and, like I've watched this before. Oh, man, it's such a great manga. I. Oh, God, I recommend it. But I just love that story because it's all these just oblivious people who are about to experience like the end of their society and they don't know and they can't do anything. So they just dress up, you know? Yeah. Me and Lacey watched this. The anime is called Phoenix 2772. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that was an anime. Yeah. We watched it and it was psychedelic as fuck. Like, oh, yeah. Once they actually meet the Phoenix, it gets like super trippy. Yeah. Ooh, I want to see that. I didn't know it was a thing. Goddamn. <laughs> Fuck. Um, I'll tape it for cool. you. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, dub it. Dub it. Yeah. Well, you, when you were talking about it being sort of post apocalyptic and people sort of cosplaying as old things, that kind of reminded me of that film, uh, A Boy and His Dog. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, that, when there's like the uh, the subterranean people that dress up as like old, old timey Southerners, like Dixie Southerners. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's even in uh, near Automata, you know, there's all these societies of robots that cosplay as cultists or oh, medieval people or that's whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, the peace loving jungle tribe. Right. Exactly. So it's, I think it's a common trope because it's a real human behavior. I don't think it's an artistic invention. It's a behavior. Yeah, I guess so. But you know, the, the nineties does have its own aesthetic. I mean, yeah. VHS four by three aspect ratio. (laughs) Yeah. The eighties and nineties definitely have their own like strong aesthetics. I guess every decade or era does, but something about that resonates with people now. Maybe things are too pretty and digital. I I always think of how bad streaming looks and how much I would rather have like analog video noise than streaming like color banding problems and things like that. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that modernity is just ugly. Like, here's my take on it. I live in Minneapolis. Minneapolis is a city that is notorious for not preserving its own history. It bulldozes the past and then it builds fucking hideous buildings. I mean... (laughs) It's a squat, ugly city. It has no cool architecture. And it's all because, like, we destroyed this ornate architecture of the past and then we replaced it with functional, shitty-looking buildings. Like, I think people sometimes imagine modernity or even futurism, and it's like this sort of beautiful, uh, minimalist type of thing. Mm -hmm. And when you actually see it in practice and all of the, you know, practical considerations are taken into account... It's not pretty, and it's yeah, not I mean, aesthetically pleasing. The The gentrification lofts that are popping up all over America are, like, the perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. Like, no matter what city you're in, like, Austin is just, like, filled with gentrification lofts now. But other right. cities like Louisville and uh, even San Antonio, we're seeing, like, a huge influx. Where there used to be, like, an artist community is now just, like, it used to be warehouses full of artists, and now they were bulldozed. Now they have all these, like, disgusting, like, futurist kind of, like, concrete lofts for for people that probably didn't even live in the city five years ago. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because, like, we have that, too. Like you said, everyone does, but... Minneapolis was on the cutting edge of that architectural style. (laughs) And so I've just always had that, that view of it. I think to give a video game example... I think people thought like a futuristic UI would be like something out of Minority Report. And instead we got like 
the same UI that's in every EA game that looks like shit, you know? Right. Yeah. Or just, you know, like bold-faced Helvetica. <laughs> right. From every exactly. European game. Exactly. Which is fine. Um, I like Helvetica. It's fine, but, like, what is it really doing for you, you know? Before we get too deep into this, I did want to discuss uh, something related to our podcast in general, which is that I have some patch notes. Oof. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I just wanted to kind of go through a couple things we talked about in the past and update uh, people on them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have one, too. Okay, so uh, first and foremost, episodes two and three both actually got patched. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I realized that SoundCloud lets you replace files, and so I've been abusing that. Oh, dope. Episode two had just some weird bad edits that I fixed, but... Episode three, on the other hand, was a mess uh, (laughs) because James and I talked about it and realized that we were both just under a lot of stress and not really at our best. True. So I made some general edits and there was a part where the audio dropped out that I fixed. However, there was one stylistic edit, which is this incredibly long section about me talking about how I wanted to have sex with Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, it was just way too long. And Wait, then you took that I, out? How dare you? I shortened it. Here's you censored the best, yourself. <laughs> here's the best part. I tried to shorten it, and I fucked up the first edit and actually accidentally made it longer somehow. Uh, <laughs> and then I had to go back and do another edit, which was fine because there was other stuff I wanted to fix too. So okay. it was all fine, but I just want people to know that if if you you know went back and you thought, wasn't this section about Ali wanting to uh, intimately know Mads Mikkelsen longer. Yes, it did used to be longer, and I changed it. Nice. Other note, there was one listener who commented on our SoundCloud that we should try Resident Evil 7 in VR before we shit all over it. (laughs) And and he said it very nicely. I want to say that. It it wasn't flipping like that. And uh, he seems cool, and I wanted to say, yes, I am going to try very hard to figure out how to do that. So if any of my friends are listening and you have some sort of VR setup that I don't know about, uh, hit me up. Also, I found out that you can play Alien Isolation in VR, which is oh, kind of bonkers. I want to try that too. So at some point, I'm going to try VR to you, listener. I don't have a PlayStation 4, so I'm, it's never going to happen. Yeah, I don't have anything at home, but I, I got to know somebody, I figure. <laughs> yeah, uh, at least, you know, you kick the tires, give it a spin, you know? Yeah, that's all I want to do. And my last note is that uh, in episode two, I forgot that James was discussing a black metal band called Ungla that yes. scared we're racist. Hey, James, want to give us an update? Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. Uh, it turns out they're fucking racist. Um, and that's been Patch Notes. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, that's all we need to give on that. Fuck, the, <laughs> fuck that shit. Uh, listen to not racist bands instead. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's real easy to like not listen to racist bands. Yeah, I don't think I listen to any racist you bands. You know what the fucked up thing is, dude, I bought like three of their LPs from fucking Poland. They come in two weeks later, they're outed as like neo Nazis. Man, I don't want to listen to Nazis. I don't want to give plays or money or anything to fucking Nazis. Right. I want to kill them. I want to go back to Indiana Jones shit, man. Let's fucking kill him, dude. Yeah, like Wolfenstein. I mean, killing Nazis used to be like a thing, right? Yeah, kill them all, dude. Nazis weren't even like people until 2016. You know what I mean? They're not people. 
This yeah, has always been my fucking, my position on this has always been very simple and very clear, which is that when you dehumanize other people, you dehumanize yourself. If you support dehumanizing other people, I no longer have to view you as human and I can root for you to get fucking <laughs> blasted in the face. Yeah. I mean, I'm down for that. Right? Like, fuck you guys. Yeah. Fuck all of you. Fuck white supremacists. Fuck the KKK. Fuck the Nazis. Fuck all you people. Fuck them. That's all. It's not your drunk uncle anymore. You know, that's, well, well I don't know what your uncle's like, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they weren't like that. The proverbial racist white uncle is what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, like, Asian racism is a little different. It's not like death camp racism. It's just like say really bad stuff racism, I guess. Fuck. I don't know. It's yeah. all bad. All the older generations are just terrible. I don't know. What are you going to do? And nostalgia. <laughs> you remember when Nazis weren't people? Yeah. No. Like, <laughs> uh, Remember those old video games where you got to kill Nazis instead of like having to worry if the guy who made the game you're playing is a Nazi? Or you have to like argue with them on the internet? <laughs> yeah, man. What a fucking mess, you know? Metal fans are almost as bad as video game fans. For sure. No, 100% agree. I was just going to say, though, it's so crazy that it's like it's so bad that even they had to remove the name of the creator of Minecraft from the game because he's like a racist. Not just such a piece of shit, man. Yeah. And that's super problematic because kids look up to him. Yeah. And the same thing with like PewDiePie, you know? Yeah. Minecraft. It's a toy for kids. Jesus. Yeah. It seems like PewDiePie. I don't know. I don't fucking watch his shit, but... He's really trying to, like, distance himself from all that shit after the uh, New Zealand thing. Which strikes me as a lot of hot bullshit, because people shouldn't need to die for you to take that stance. Yeah, yeah, and why is it so hard to just come out and say all that shit's fucking wrong? Exactly. I never directly influenced a mass shooting, and I'm against all that stuff, so... Yeah. I can can have a a moral high ground over PewDiePie and tell him to fuck off. (laughs) I'm already (laughs) tired. This episode's over. Let's talk about, like... Let's bitch about more fun things like video (laughs) games. Right. Okay. So today we're talking about games that use nostalgia as a design principle. Mm -hmm. And my take on it is that when the whole indie game boom happened, whenever that happened a few years ago now, I expected a lot of developers to come out and start making games that were in genres, sort of forgotten genres of the Mm -hmm. past. Right. Right. And it's interesting to see that that didn't really happen that much. For the most part, it was just people borrowing the 16-bit aesthetic and then putting it on whatever game they were working on. Right, like Minecraft. Right. Minecraft is a great example, but even stuff that looks more or plays more Mm 16-bit-like, the mechanics and the way it plays seem to be very modern to me, and it's mostly just an aesthetic thing. So it's interesting to play games like the two we're talking about today, which is The Glass Staircase and Stories Untold, mm-hmm. because they're kind of the opposite. Like, they're not afraid to be more modern sometimes in the presentation, but the mechanics are very, very, very old school. Right. Stories Untold kind of blends more modernity towards right. the end. But yeah. Glass Staircase, its feet are firmly planted in 1997. Right. And, you know, before these two games, which are both pretty recent, I mean, Glass Staircase is new still. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stories Untold came out in... February 2017. Right. So before that, there were a couple games that 
did something similar. One of them uh, being Dread Out, uh, which was a 2014 survival horror game. It's an Indonesian developed game, which is kind of interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's specifically meant to be like a PlayStation 2 survival horror game. I just found a video of PewDiePie playing it. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anyway, that game is really good, and I really love what they did with it because it does really play like a PS2 game, but it's a little more modern. I'd say it's more like an early 360 game, something like Condemned, you mm. know? That does look really cool. We might have to put that on the rodeo list. I think it is. I think I put it on Oh, there. cool. Cool. Um, cause I played it not that long ago. I just played it like a couple years ago. Mm. Um, that game was really cool, and I like that game because it was really faithful to the genre and obviously made by people who really loved games like Silent Hill 3 and Resident mm. Evil 4, you know? Mm. Another game that I'd put in this category would be uh, Lost in Vivo, which we talked about. Sure. And that was another game that I loved because it, the aesthetic and a lot of the little art design choices were very steeped in this genre, but... It was still very modern, and it was very unique. Yeah, and it's... Games like Lost in Vivo almost feel like, similar to Glass Staircase, it's like one guy's imagining of the genre. There's, like, weird idiosyncrasies, but it's, it's, it's like, firmly planted within the genre. And so what I wanted to say about, you know, this whole concept of nostalgia as a design choice was that when I look at these sort of games, what I personally am looking for is a game that doesn't just use it as a gimmick. You know, a game that is steeped in the genre by someone who loves the genre and right. really just wanted to continue it. And sure. I, I say that as an artist who, like, I make music that's very inspired by the 80s and 90s. And mm -hmm. that's sort of my approach to it. You know, it's like my band plays a Kate Bush cover and it's not like her, 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 Kate Bush, like her, her, her 80s pop. It's like, no, Kate Bush is God. Like, like, that's the milieu. Right. Like, that's the thing, you know? Yeah. So when, when I was looking at, you know, let's, let's talk about Glass Staircase, you mm -hmm. know? When I was looking at Glass Staircase, I was excited. Yeah. Because it looks cool. First impressions of Glass Staircase are great. Right. And, but I was suspicious. And I'll get to my suspicions. <laughs> but maybe we should just talk about what the premise is or what it is. You know? Yeah, well, just a little background. Glass Staircase is developed by a very small company called Puppet Combo. Basically one guy, and he's made a handful of games that are very grindhouse, 80s VHS style, and they all have sort of like questionable quality. Um, right. Just go to his website, puppetcombo.com, I think. Watch the trailers for his games. Like, you can tell this dude loves the 80s, loves horror. The, the thrown-together quality of the games is kind of interesting. We'll get into Glass Staircase. I haven't played any of the other games, but I'm not sure if I want to. I think watching the trailer is probably enough. Yeah. Um, but dude's doing something pretty unique and pretty cool. So right. I'll, I'll give him that. And Glass Staircase specifically gained a lot of press and notoriety based on the fact that it looks like a PS1 horror title. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, when you look at the screenshots and all the articles and the press it was getting, it looks like a PS1 horror title, but it mixes in a big dose of 
Italian horror, specifically the director Lucio Fulci. Absolutely. I think for people like us, that's just like fucking catnip, you know? Yeah, like, it, it, I, I got a heavy dose of like Argento's phenomenon also. Well, and Suspiria too, with the sort of, you know... Female teenage protagonists. Yeah, but I, I had a couple hangups going into this game, right? Mm-hmm. So number one is that in the official description, which is parroted in a lot of the press it was getting, it uh-huh. says it's designed to be like a PS2 horror title. Which kind of tripped my, you know, bullshit detector because I was like, well, no, this looks like a PS1 game. Like PS2 horror was a really specific thing. And I thought to dread out, right, where it's a little slicker, it's mm-hmm. a little more put together. Mm-hmm. It, it looks professional. PS1 horror games, they weren't really professional looking. You know what I mean? Well, the, the biggest thing is the static camera and pre-rendered backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And that's PS1 AF. Right. Exactly. Even like. That's what's interesting is that if you know your horror games, by the time the PS2 rolled around, tank controls and pre-rendered backgrounds were going away. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only game I can think of on the PS2 that has both of those things is Onimusha, and that's even more of an action title, really, like a strategic action title. So when I saw that, I was a little bit like, oh, huh, that's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Then the second thing is, so the game has a really distinct look, and all the press photos and everything have this very jaggy ps1 looking graphics uh-huh. you know immediately recognizable if you ever have played the original playstation sure right it punches you in the face yet when i turned on the game it's just a filter that you can turn off it's multiple filters lay- layered on top of each other right and you can change what filter is on there and right after playing it for about 10 minutes i realized that i kind of hated all the filters They're very, very obtrusive, and they don't really fit. And once again, it made me think to the other game that I mentioned in my preamble here, which was Lost in Vivo, which Mm -hmm. has a very heavy aesthetic. It has a very distinct graphic style, but it doesn't get in the way of gameplay, and I never wanted to turn it off, you know? I was never Mm -hmm. like, oh, I wish this just wasn't here, but man, once you get to that hedge maze, I was like, dude, I can't right now <laughs> well I, I i did stick with one of the filters i think i stuck with I, there's one called either like ps1 or retro or something like that survival horror survival horror which still like it it turns off all anti-aliasing so you get like really jaggy diagonals things like that i feel mm-hmm. like that fit the best there's one that makes it look like a crt which like like, I use a CRT daily. Like, they don't look that fucking bad. No, I know. <laughs> well, it yeah. was funny because here's... Okay, once again, here's a little bit of insight into where I was at when I played this game. Uh, the day that I played this game, the night before, I had finished editing a video for work. And in that video, we had a, a B camera that we ended up putting this filter on, like... Uh, hard encoding it to the video so I couldn't take it off right Mm -hmm. and it was like a VHS glitch filter and so I'm editing the video and I was like god you know this filter is cool but it's just so much Mm -hmm. it's so fucking extra and you can't turn it down because it was just out of a shitty app I was like so annoyed and I was just like god I wish I could just fucking turn down this filter but I edited the video it's fine it looks great blah 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 (laughs) but 
when I went and booted up this game, I had the same feeling where I was like, this filter is cool, but like, can I fucking turn it down? Like, it's so hardcore. Once I know that it's just a filter in my mind, it's just like, ugh, I want a slider. Like, you know what I mean? Once you know that it's not actually the game's graphical style, and the game's graphical style is kind of just like a bland, low-poly Unity game, you're just like, ugh, you know? Drives me nuts. I can't fault it too much for being a bland, low-poly Unity game because it's one guy. It's not a whole team. And when you put it in that context, it's still, like, quite the achievement to, like, release something like that as a oh, very yeah. small team. But everything you're saying is indicative of a big-picture problem with this game, which is clearly style over substance. Right. The gameplay, it, it, it tries to recreate the PS1 era to a fault. The controls are just painfully bad. You can switch between tank and modern control versions, and they're both pretty awful, uh, I actually switched back to tank controls after trying the modern controls because I hated them so much. Yeah, I played with tank too. Yeah. Uh, did same. you use a, a controller or a keyboard and mouse? Uh, controller. Yeah, I controllered it too. I wouldn't have called it a modern control scheme uh, because it's very unique and strange. Yeah, it's like a weird twin stick thing, not like a dual analog thing. Yeah, one of the sticks, you walk forward and back and you strafe left and right. And then with the other stick, you turn... Yeah, it's really weird. It's it's a fucking mess. They could have did it with one stick, and when you press left, you go left, right? Right. They fucked that up bad. And, and you know, to give the listener some context, this is all what you encounter when you boot up the game. Yeah. Within the first three minutes, you know, you start in a room, and you're just fiddling with all the settings, and you're fiddling with the controls, like, just, just trying to make heads or tails of the situation. It's just a mess. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> Before, you know, we get too deep into just kvetching, maybe it's it's time to talk about what is the setup, you know, what is the game? Right. right. Well, the, the setup's pretty cool. You start the story, there's there's a handful of girls living in a mansion together. They're all wearing the same clothes. At the beginning of the game, you wake up and uh, a PA is speaking to you, or speaking to all the girls, reminding you to, like, take your pills. And then that's really the only communication you have with anyone else in the mansion the entire game. Right. Um, is the strange Wizard of Oz voice speaking through the PA. Right. The voice gives specific girls specific tasks per day with the promise of them being able to go home to their families if they do well. And so you start the game as one young girl. You get a task and you try to complete it. It abruptly ends within, you know, 10 minutes. And then you start another one and another one. And so that's kind of the first half of the game is this atmospheric, weird, disjointed story. You're living through this experience, but you're also trying to figure out what's going on and why it's happening. You're in this big mansion that's mm-hmm. sort of confusing. You don't get a map, which I think is cool. Uh, really? That bothered the piss out of me. I thought it was kind of cool because you actually had to piece together where stuff was and figure it out. And there are some old like PS1 horror games that would mm-hmm. kind of do that, you know? So I was sort of like, well, okay, points if you're doing the pre-Silent Hill 2 map. Well, right? there are a ton of locked doors everywhere, and mm-hmm. I got lost constantly in the first half of the game, just trying locked yeah. door after locked door. But, you know, th- that's about the first half of the game, first two-thirds. There's no combat. no. Yeah, no combat, just exploration, uh, very light inventory management. It kind of felt like the first Alone in the Dark game on PC. Oh, very, very heavy Alone in the Dark vibes. 
more adventure gamey than survival horror y, but I really feel like that's the best part of the game. Right. And I mean, I would argue the best part of the game is that little hedge maze, which the, the game has kind of a hedge maze sequence outside. It's foggy, really mm-hmm. cool, unnerving music. It's mm-hmm. clearly a callback to the first Alone in the Dark with the hedge maze. Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. The the abrupt endings to the little, you know, like story vignettes are really cool. Yeah. The end of that one is really cool because it's kind of a scare, but it's not a jump scare. Yeah. The first yeah. one ends with a really cheap, blown out jump scare. Yeah. Like I had my speakers on pretty loud and it didn't scare me. It just pissed me off because it was like so <laughs> crunchy and loud. And I was like, mm-hmm. God, fuck you, dude. It was not cool. And also you sort of get the feel of uh, how the game handles storytelling during this part of the game, which Uh is partially you're finding short, succinct notes and getting these broadcasts over the PA. But you're also finding these very long journal entries. And those sort of immediately started to get under my skin. And it's something that continues throughout the game. There are a lot of very long journal entries They're not copy edited and they are not broken into paragraphs. You know, usually in a survival horror game, you'd get, you know, a journal entry in a specific place that would make sense. You know, maybe on a nightstand or something. Four or five pages long, short to the point. You learn something new. Now with the glass staircase, you'll come across like a 12 page (laughs) book. In just a really random place where it doesn't really make sense in terms of atmospheric storytelling. And right. that's like the only narrative vehicle, really, to the game. And it it's not good writing. It's not well written. It's just not good. It gets a little bit of a pass because in 94, 95, 96, those games weren't being translated very well from Japan. So we do get, like, really wooden dialogue in games like that. I mean, Jill Sandwich. but Right. So it does get a bit of a pass, but the copy editing is a a little bit unforgivable. I mean, I know it can be patched, but there's some crazy typos. Right. I think for me, the thing that bothered me the most was that this choice was made. Almost as if the developer was thinking, this is good. We're going to make people read all this because it's good. Mm. And it's not good. Why would that be the choice you make to deliver the story? It's very bad. And Mm -hmm. it's boring, and it made me uncomfortable because there's so many typos. (laughs) It's just such a bummer. And the thing, too, is that, like you said, this is sort of the only story development you get in the game. Right. And it's really predictable and not great. Like, if you're going into this game thinking there's this hook, interesting central mystery... I want to figure out what's going on. It doesn't happen. I kept wanting it to happen. (laughs) Right. Partially because the game just doesn't tell you shit, which I'm in support of. Sure. But also because you just get all this kind of unremarkable text pointing towards this sort of Lovecraftian horror conspiracy. And Mm -hmm. just I'm not interested. It was not good, in my opinion. Well, do we want to talk a little bit about the story that unravels through the the glass bookcase, as you call it? (laughs) Yeah, that was my sick fucking burn, Uh, the glass bookcase, because it keeps making me fucking read, dude. Reading sucks. I got Chinese sci-fi novels for that. Don't put reading in my video game. Gamers rise up. Picture books are the way of the future. (laughs) I want my pictures. Give me my pictures, (laughs) goddammit. 
All right, so you can fact check me on this because I'm not 100 percent on all the on all the notes that I read through the fucking game. It was a lot. Yeah. So this woman and her husband live there. He goes off to war and he comes back with some like pretty rowdy PTSD. And <laughs> something speaks to him and he discovers that his grandfather did all these crazy experiments about like bringing the dead back to life. He like turns into like a total asshole and like shuts out his wife and he starts like living in the cellar. And doing all these, like, weird experiments on, like, bringing dead people back to life. Right. And he starts on his cousin that died in the war. He brings the cousin back to life, and he ends up, like, killing it again. And So you, you hear that story from both perspectives, like the wife and the evil scientist's perspective. It's pretty interesting. And then, like, villagers start showing up around the house, like, en masse to volunteer for the weird experiments. And, like, giving their kids to the doctor so they could do experiments on the kids, too. Which I don't really understand because he's bringing the dead back to life. So why do you need live people? Yeah. There's a lot of stuff I don't understand. Maybe I missed some memos or maybe I, like, powered through them. No, I mean, that all sounds like everything I read. Yeah. I don't... I didn't read anything different. And, I mean, this is... The the problem with this story is that, to be clear... You're all just reading this in these giant epic length memos. Right, right. The story in the game, the sort of procedural story or atmospheric story, uh-huh. is that there's this group of young girls mm-hmm. in a mysterious mansion. They keep trying to get through it and disappearing. What the fuck is that? Like, that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. Is like, yo, what the fuck is that? Tell me what the fuck that is. Exactly. And instead, instead, the game is like, dear Violetta. Tonight, the experiment went awry. And it's just all this fucking garbage. And I was just like, I'm not interested. And it kept going until like the very end. And then it has an ending that makes no fucking sense. And (laughs) because it's not tied to the story in the memos, it's Mm -hmm. tied to the story in the game, sort of. But it seems Mm -hmm. nonsensical because that story wasn't developed. The interesting story in the game wasn't developed. The, the closest thing I can compare it to is in House of Leaves, the horror novel by uh, Mark Danieluski. House of Leaves is interesting because there's parts of it that are amazing. It's got this great main storyline about this house that keeps growing and generating itself. It's very cool. But there's a whole other story that plays out in the margins about a guy who I don't remember his name, but I would call him Motorcycle McCool. And basically, he's just like, yeah, exactly. Total James Hurley vibes where he's like, I'm a bad boy. I do what I want. I wake up and smoke cigs and drink a beer like, fuck you. Yeah. And the book gets really hung up on that story. And towards the end of it, it's developing that story almost more than the really interesting story. And it's just Mm. so frustrating because it's like, yo, I came here for that. Not this. Why are you showing me this? And that's how I felt about this game where I was like, dude, I did not come here for some very poorly written knockoff Bram Stoker bullshit. Like I came here for some atmospheric story stuff. Some creepy like Jalo horror. Right. And just visually, you know, the game reminds me of these great minimalist PS1 games like the uh, City of Lost Children or, you know, even like Silent Hill. And then this other stuff just doesn't remind me of anything cool. It's just not good. But that's the thing is like, if you wanted to make a game that put together different influences, you should mix them together. It's like you shouldn't just dump them on the table and be like, 
here you go, suck it up, you hogs, which is kind of what this game does, because it's like, well, here's your PS1 pile of slop, and here's your alone-in-the-dark pile of slop. Enjoy, you know? Well, so the second half of the game, (laughs) all the other girls are dead, and you're the last one left. You decide to not take your pill in the morning, and you open up the door to your bedroom, and there's a gun there with a note saying something to the effect of, like, Let's enact this plan that we had planned out. I don't know if I missed something, but I had no knowledge of this fucking plan. Did I miss something? (laughs) No, you did not miss something. Okay. So you're the last girl and you pick up this gun and then it turns into the more survival horror-y, action-y stuff, which is pretty bad. (laughs) I will say, though, that the final girl is really cool. You're like... yeah. You're probably like a 15-year-old black girl with a giant rifle that's like the size of her. Uh And like visually, that's just like the coolest thing ever. Because (laughs) once you start like fighting, like your dress gets all bloody and shit. So you're running around with a rifle all bloody. It's it's a pretty cool visual. I'll give it that. Which, I mean, that's kind of the whole game. Has these really great visuals, you know, this really cool design. But I mean... In order to get to the point where your dress is bloody, you have to fight things. And that's about as fun as actually fighting people in real life. (laughs) It's not fun. I'd rather take a cheese grater to my scrotum than to (laughs) play the action sequences in this game again. Yeah. So as previously mentioned, the controls are fucking horrible. And I guess the way you approach combat for me was to approach enemy, die, and then try again and basically just arm weapon and pray. You get an, an aiming reticule, which sort of tricked me into thinking it was going to be intuitive, but it doesn't, it's a stunt. It doesn't do shit. Right. And then there's auto aim, but it also fucking sucks. It's literally like the world worst of all worlds when it comes to like survival horror style combat. And to make it worse, the bad guys are kind of fast too. And the camera uh, is tightly cropped in a lot of places. So you can't see what the fuck you're aiming at. You're way too close to the camera. It's just a shit show. And this is where all of my suspicions and conspiracies and fears just all came true. Because, all right, you know, there's one game that I didn't mention earlier, which is called Back in 1995. Have you played this game? No, not even heard of it. It's terrible. It's fucking awful. And it's basically supposed to be like a survival horror game that could have come out in 1995, but it's really janky. It sucks. It's very jokey. The whole thing is like, oh, herf derf. Like, remember these games? They were so dumb. When I was playing this game, I didn't get that vibe from it. Like it was making fun of survival horror games, but it also was like it was intentionally playing up all the things about survival horror games that sucked. And... When I tried to think about real games that controlled this poorly and had combat this bad, I could really only think of a couple, and they absolutely would not be games that you would hold up and be like, yes, survival horror. They're oddities, right? The only game that frustrated me this bad in this genre was Rule of Rose, which is a game that is maybe about five hours long, and it took me a month to beat. And it's simply because I got to one boss in the game. It's a very frustrating game, and I got to one boss that I was convinced was unbeatable, so I didn't play it for an entire month. I played all of it in one day, except for the last hour. (laughs) I didn't play it for a month, and I went back, and I beat the final hour. It's that level of frustration. And once again, Rule, Rule of Rose has a great story, beautiful art design. It's a really gorgeous game. It has all these hooks to keep you going, and the frustration is just sad. Like, 
I wish someone would just fix that game and put it out again because it's it's almost a classic, you know? Yeah, and I mean, it's it's probably more popular now than it was when it released because of YouTubers. Oh, for sure. It's probably ripe for a Steam re-release. Oh, yeah, totally. And it's just interesting to me that, like, I've played some old-school survival horror games again recently, and... Yes, the fixed cameras are frustrating. Yes, the controls are frustrating. But those games are really well made and they were well designed. And ultimately, if you know the genre and you're used to it, they're playable. This is not like that at all. Yeah, I I rage quit twice playing The Glass Staircase. (laughs) Yeah. And the worst things came out of my mouth. (laughs) And I scared my dog and my girlfriend. (laughs) I would say the only reason that I actually beat this game was that I was... uh, I was going through a breakup with Dark Souls. (laughs) And so I was like, so just in the like hole of being frustrated by games that I was like, no, Mm. you are not going to do this to me. I'm going to do this to you. And uh, yeah, I bashed my head against it until I beat it. The the major frustration is the lack of checkpoints. In the first half of the game, it's not a problem because you'll save after each day. And you can't really fuck up. But the second half of the game, when you start dying, it ends up being all these like little mini marathons to the next autosave, right. which is super fucking frustrating. When you have to, you know, battle like there's one part of the game, spoiler alert, where you're fighting another one of the girls that died previously. And now she's naked and super fast with a butcher knife. And, you know, I probably died three times on it, but you finally kill her. And then r- right after you kill her, You've got to fight another boss. Who's way harder. So annoying. And I'm not going to get into the mechanics of this boss fight, but here it is. You, you, you circle around, shoot him, and then circle around and shoot him 40 fucking times until he dies. And just right. hoping that the tank controls don't steer you into something that you get stuck on. God, mm-hmm. it's, so, it's ultimately frustrating experience. You know what was actually the most frustrating part about that? Was that I didn't know you had a reload button. <laughs> Oh, fuck. So the first two times I fought him, I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I only have five bullets. He takes more than five bullets. And then I figured out there's a fucking reload button, and I was furious. I mean, Pain. this is what I mean. And this is not even to mention the final section of the game is, like, basically a chase sequence where you have to run through, like, a fuck ton of enemies, and yep. they can kill you really easily. And you basically just have to luck out, which is what I did, because a lot of the areas mm-hmm. obscured by fire and camera angles. I think there's random placement of bad guys, too. Yeah. So sometimes they're blocking the hallway, and sometimes they're not. Yeah, I just got lucky. I mean, that's I, that's the only way that I did it. It was just, once again, I was trying to figure out, like, is there a game that is this bad, that's this frustrating and broken? And... Yeah, there's one. It's Rule of Rose, and it's the worst part of the game. Like, And it just kept making me think back to what I was saying in the intro, where it's like, when I think about nostalgia or I think about you know incorporating influences that are nostalgic, mm-hmm. it's not this. This is a mess. This is almost what I would expect someone... Like, I would have expected someone to make this game in 2002 who hated survival horror games and wanted to make fun of people who liked them. This is the big crux, right? Like, is the game, like, a big missed opportunity? Because there's a bunch of stuff I do like about it, but it just falls flat on its face the second half. Or is this, you know, a guy that's just cranking out these, like, 80s grindhouse kind of games 
with no interest in quality control, just trying to build hype through aesthetics. I want to lean towards missed opportunity because it, it, it takes a lot of effort to produce something like this, especially for one or two people. Right. No, for sure. And it's like, I don't want to shit on like an indie dev or just someone who put this together. But I yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a huge missed opportunity. And I just wonder about the choices made here and why they were made and, mm-hmm. and why a bigger question is why so many people are talking about how great this game is. I mean, I've watched videos, I've read articles, like I was kind of poking around and like people who I usually like their writing or respect their opinion or whatever are talking about how this is good. And it's like, dude, how? How? I mean, it's it's not mm, it's it's an interesting experiment. I really think if, you know, if Puppet Combo is going to keep evolving into something like like a great game dev, right, they they either need to work on their scenario design or hire a scenario designer. And work right. on, you know, like more interesting puzzles. Because essentially, you know, there are a couple like, you know, the door's locked. You need to find the thing or you need to find the thing to progress. Right. But it's always just like fetch one item and bring it back to the thing and then progress. There's no real interesting inventory management or puzzle mechanics or anything like that. So what it boils down to is, you know, a great atmosphere, uh, pretty interesting, you know, like mansion and the seller, you know, the entire environment is really interesting. Yeah. And I think a scenario designer would come in and see this built out environment and come up with like a lot of really interesting, you know, like puzzles and ideas on how to <laughs> make the game worth playing a second time. You know, I, I agree with all that. And I think I don't know. <laughs> I mean, just... imagine if this game got another year of development. Yeah. Oh, for sure. No, I, I agree with that. But I also just wonder about, you know, the basic choices made and the basic premise of the game. And like I said, like if it's if it's in a good faith enough to develop into something good, because like I think about something like Lost in Vivo or Dread Out, which neither of those got as much exposure as this game is getting now. And it just Mm. sort of bums me out because it really a lot of it comes back to to. The fact that this genre has always been kind of an underdog mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of examples of it sort of getting a day in the sun and then people just dunking on it because it's not like, you know, solid enough mechanically or whatever. And true. It's always kind of a bummer to me to see something like this because it's like, oh, like you have an opportunity here, like you're getting exposure. But I mean, if people go and try and play this, they're going to be frustrated, you know? Well, it could also be video games. Journalism is weird and fickle. And if something catches on on one website or on Reddit, it spreads like wildfire. They may have had a really good PR person and Lost in Vivo didn't. Right. Uh, It released in sort of the, the doldrums of the year in terms of video game releases. We don't see a ton of releases in February, March, April. Uh, I think Lost in Vivo came out sometime in like November or something like that, which is just, you know, packed full of like AAA releases and stuff. Right. Uh, But you're right. I think Lost in Vivo is a better game by far. And I think it's fair to compare the two also. Super small teams. uh, PS1 nostalgia trip. Yeah. And it's just it just is frustrating to me because it's like, you know, it's like when, when a when a band gets popular and you're just like, no, that sucks. And there's a better thing. Don't listen to that. That sucks. <laughs> this is the Greta Van Fleet to Resident Evil 1's Led Zeppelin. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> yes. I agree. It, it was just kind of a bummer for me. 
And I, I don't know, I guess like part of the reason, you know, that I would want to talk about it on this podcast, I do want to give a dissenting opinion. And if there are people who listen to this and are on the fence, maybe they've been reading about it. It's like, I would say like, fuck it, dude, don't bother. (laughs) Watch some YouTube replay it. I don't know. I want Puppet Combo to like move on and evolve and keep doing interesting shit. They have a great aesthetic and um, they have really interesting ideas. You know, maybe this game will do well for them. They'll get some capital behind them and they can do great things. That's my hope. Yeah, exactly. I agree with all that. It's very even handed of you, James. <laughs> I was I was sitting here like fuming when I beat the game and I was literally <laughs> just just trying to think about stuff that I've wasted the same amount of money on. Cause it's very cheap. It's, it's six dollars. Six bucks. Yeah. And so I was, I was like, just running through a list of things I had wasted six dollars on. I was like, a roll of tape I didn't need, uh, a third beer at a show when I should have just left, uh, and I was just like rolling through this like text crawl of stuff so that I didn't feel as bad about buying the game. I spent more money on this than I did Alien Isolation. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's what I mean. But also like. The price of PC games are so, like, just, they don't make sense anymore. <laughs> right. I don't, I try not to compare the prices of PC games anymore, because nothing makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I got, off topic, I got Yakuza 0 for, like, $12, and that game brought me, like, so many hours of joy. That was, like, at least 100 bucks worth of fun for 12 bucks. Yeah, and then there's games that you pay $60 for, and you just play for a few, uh, few hours, and you're just like... Or you just feel like you'll never get back to it. I have so many games like that where I'm just like, I gotta get back to it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's my retirement plan. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to all these games. Yeah. So, yeah, all those Dragon Quest games I keep starting. Let's go finish oh, one of them. Fucking hell, man. So many JRPGs. Yeah. My retirement home is going to have a stack of Super Nintendo JRPGs. <laughs> it's just going to be JRPG themed. Yeah, I can't wait to see retirement homes when we're like 70 and 80. Yeah. Talk about nostalgia. <laughs> Prefab cottages with a lot of screens. Anyways, do we want to say anything else about this game? Oh, do we want to talk about how dumb the ending is? I mean, you touched on it, but do you want to talk about it? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do it. Uh, so you escape and there's a car waiting for you and you jump in the back seat and the car drives off. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, the end. Well, and also your the other young girls in the game are all sort of uh, star Wars style, like force ghost Jedi waving at you. It's the worst. Because they're all definitely dead. Well, one's like double dead. I don't know about the other ones. Oh yeah. One of them we killed. Shot. There's the zoom in when you shoot her in the eye. That was pretty cool. Yeah. That were, that was very Fulci, actually. Like the splinter in the eye scene in Zombie. Yeah. And like the title screen was like super like zombie looking. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you clearly have good taste, developer, but you can do better. Do better. You're better than this. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Papa Combo. Yeah. I mean, that's all I have. Well, and and you know, okay. So the other game that we're going to talk about is Stories Untold, which I thought was interesting because I had the opposite reaction to it. Like, I was really into this game, but it was almost as frustrating. Really? I I didn't really have many frustrating moments with it, except for the UI in one part we'll talk about. But well, I mean, I think the whole game 
design is sort of purposefully frustrating because it's supposed once again i mean i thought these two games paired well because they're both supposed to be old school they're supposed to emulate this experience mm-hmm. of technology from the past and i wasn't expecting it so for me it was just like oh shit i have to remember how to play text adventure games you know yes and so it was funny that and and it's it's not modernized like at all it is as frustrating the text parser is a little more forgiving than the old school text adventure games. Right, but not I say much. I say that coming from just finishing the first two Leisure Suit Larry games. Sure. Which I had a bunch of fun with. So in, in Leisure Suit Larry, you can only give it, you know, a verb and a noun. You know, like, enter dumpster. Uh, in Stories Untold, you could give it multiple words, like, go to backyard. Right. Which wouldn't work in Leisure Suit Larry. You would have to write, go backyard. Right. So there, there is, there's a bit of forgiveness in the text parsing. And also, in terms of scope of what you can do, it's much more limited. So it's, it, I would say it's on a bit of a narrower path than the old school text adventure games. Right. Which helps. You know, it, it keeps the pace up a lot better than something like Zork. Totally. And... That was like, yeah, I played a ton of Zork when I was a yeah. kid. So that, that's, Zork is fucked because you could like, I don't know, uh, I, I was never good at it. So I I put a lot of time in it and then you'd fuck yourself. And then I felt like I would lose for like three hours of my life. Oh, yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. No, totally. That just doesn't happen here. You can't you can't fuck yourself. It's in, in terms of game design. It's broken up into four episodes. It's presented like a TV show. It's got intro credits at the beginning of every chapter. Right. Um, and then you're 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 thrown into one of the four episodes. Uh, each one has a different approach, um, but they all have a unique narrative vehicle. Like the the first chapter is a text adventure game. Uh, the second chapter you're doing experiments in a laboratory, so you've got a bunch of equipment in front of you. The the third one you're dealing with a bunch of microfilm, so you have to go through like a a, a bunch of microfilm for instructions and have to play with radio signals, things like that. Right, uh, and that all that all ties into the story in interesting ways, for sure. And that's what I mean about the the interface being this kind of purposefully frustrating thing. Is like, yeah, the first one is just a text adventure. And so mm-hmm. you have to remember or learn if you don't remember how to play those games. Mm-hmm. Uh, two and three. If you pause the game, it does explain the text parser to you. So it's not too bad. Oh, really? I didn't I didn't yeah. pause. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it gives you some hints. Like it says, hey, type look around if you're lost, you know. Um, right. The second, third one involve this sort of like equipment that you have to figure out how to use. The, yes. The, the third one actually has like a realistic a microfiche machine, which mm-hmm. is really funny because, like, once again, these are all things I've actually done in my life. Like, I've actually right. used a microfiche machine and I've actually played old text adventures and stuff. And it was like, fuck, how do you use this again? And, like, yeah. it's kind of, I guess maybe it was more frustrating for me because I, I had done these things. So I was like, I should know how to do this. And I was like, really yeah. bad at it. And I was like, God damn it, I should be better at this. Well, and I assume like someone that has never used one of those machines wouldn't know that there's a focus slider and yeah. a zoom slider. So I could see how frustrating that would be to somebody that's never even like seen one of these machines in real life. Right. I was looking for the focus slider at first, but I couldn't see it because the graphics are like, kind of dark. <laughs> and I was like, where's the fucking focus slider? I can't. Am I supposed to look at this blurry? Because like I can't. <laughs> Like, I have pretty bad vision, so I was just like, God damn it. Yeah, a lot of people say the third chapter is is the worst of the three. 
It's the I hardest. Enjoyed it thoroughly. It, yeah. it is the hardest because you actually you have to you know uh, you might actually have to put pen to paper to figure out a couple of the puzzles, but right. super interesting, regardless. Right. And okay, so what I really like about this game is that so like James said, it's presented like an episodic TV show. And so you start up a chapter, you see these credits, and then it just throws you in. Mm-hmm. And in each chapter, so even the first one, you play it exactly like a text adventure, but your point of view is a person sitting at a desk looking at a computer. Right. And eventually things start happening in that frame of reference and not just in the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do we want to take a spoilery approach to this? I'd say let's wait as long as we can before we get spoilery. But so in the second and third chapters, they actually move your frame of view and interaction outside of just looking at a screen or looking at like an equipment setup. Sure. You can hit tab on your keyboard and swivel the chair around to something else. Right. And eventually you have like in the third chapter, you actually have to get up and walk around. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's when the game gets really interesting is that it's not just playing with your perspective and playing with nostalgia. It's actually like creating this really unexpected, like mind fuck where you're like, I don't know where the game is. And so even like in the third chapter, when you first like stand up and walk around, I just was like, well, I guess I'll just go to WASD and see if I can walk. And it's like, Oh shit, I can walk. Like that's fucking crazy. You know? And I really liked how, and, and the way it escalated and the way they set up the perspective that, that perspective became a really interesting part of the game that develops over time. And, you know, each scenario also kind of has this same feel to it where it starts as a mundane-ish scenario and then slowly develops and gets more and more messed up. And you're like, Uh oh, by the end, you're like, oh, shit. And the whole game is like that, too. By the end of the game, you're like, oh, no. I kept thinking back to the Twilight Zone of how something kind of like normal and just kind of ho-hum banal right sort of situation would escalate into something kind of you know pretty horrifying right and i think that is another way that it plays with nostalgia really well you know because when you start each of these chapters you're like okay well i know what this is or i know what this is going or where this is going and it really subverts your expectations every time yeah absolutely and then we didn't even talk about the fourth chapter yet. Right. But then the fourth chapter comes and it recontextualizes everything else about the game. Exactly. And I think that's why when, once again, when I contrast this game to Glass Staircase, not in terms of, you know, the technical aspect or how polished it is or blah, 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 because it's it's just a totally different, you know, type of project. I mm-hmm. like the way that they approached nostalgia because when you first boot it up so the the title sequence you see it looks like stranger things it's super stranger things yeah and it's very clearly like playing on that and it it has to assume that the viewer knows that right yeah well i mean the logo looks just like you know a stephen king book cover mm-hmm. you know just like stranger things did the music is just this kind of generic synth thing that's like <laughs> not cool like the stranger things theme song. yeah it's it's de- survive definitely did not do the soundtrack to <laughs> stories untold they could have asked me i would have did it for real cheap but yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that's what's cool is then once you actually play the game and you start you know even you get just halfway through the first chapter you're like Okay, this is all misdirection. 
this is all just playing with me and it's all just like really really interesting in that way and the mm-hmm. the game almost immediately earned my trust even though they're you know from all appearances it looks like a cheap gimmick or the nostalgia element the 80s element does you know but it really quickly right. earns your trust which i thought was very very refreshing yeah well uh, one thing we didn't mention is that um the director of the game uh was an artist on alien isolation Oh. And I feel like the retro feel in Stories Untold was directly influenced by his experience with Alien Isolation. You know, the retro feeling terminals and keyboards. And, yeah. you know, the, we talked about keyboard porn a little bit on Alien Isolation. Yeah. I felt the same amount of keyboard porn from Stories Untold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. And I really like that about the game, just as I did in Alien Isolation, where it's Mm -hmm. like it really works and it puts you in a time and place. In the beginning of chapter one, when you start the text adventure, the game is loading from a cassette. Right. And it sounds like modems screaming in pain. And it takes way too long for the game to load and then the graphics are loading in really slowly and like four color CGA or something like that. And I think that's something that I think about a lot lately because it seems like every horror game coming out is set in the 80s. And it's a it's a good setting. Like it's a cool aesthetic. It what like I said, it really puts you in a time and place. It appeals to a certain set of gamers immediately. And It solves uh, the quote-unquote cell phone problem that writers are always talking about, which is that most horror movie scenarios could be solved by the protagonist having a cell phone. Mm -hmm. So I I get all that, but I still like to sort of look at a game and think, hey, was this done in good faith? Like, does this have a reason to be here beyond just those sort of boilerplate reasons? And I think Stories Untold... It's really a, a compelling part of the game, and it's really, really well done. Do you think the 80s and 90s nostalgia is unprecedented, or do you think every generation has that? Oh, every generation does. I mean, so the 90s... I'm thinking back... Yeah, I'm thinking back to, like, the late 80s, early 90s, and there was, like, a big 60s nostalgia, you know, with, like, the Wonder Years, yeah. Happy Days, things like that. Well, and throughout the 90s, there was such a 70s nostalgia... Um, was there? Oh, uh, I guess that 70s show, et cetera. Well, and even just with fashion and design, there was that that same kind of like bold, dark, earthy color thing happening and like mm. really heavy guitar music and all this kind of stuff. Like, yeah. And in this in the 70s, there was this 50s nostalgia, like happy days. I mean, it, it's 20 year cycles. It's pretty predictable. I think that you know, like I said, I think that now we have some unique scenarios that are making people more and more go back to this. I think everyone feels like the world is going to end. And mm. also technology has progressed so much that setting something in the current day is very difficult. You know, saying like a horror story in the current day is difficult because you have to sort of write out all these elements that would ruin it. What's the scariest thing you could think of? Like Facebook going down for two hours? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I think there are some compelling movies and games that are set like inside computers that like really explore technology. But Mm. even in in those instances, it's like you have to buy all in to the modernity or you have to just take it out. So I don't know. Do we want to talk about like the whole ending 
the whole last section. I feel like we got it, kind of. You know, if you want to play it, stop the podcast now and go play it. Come back in two hours. Because this is basically a two or three hour game if you power through it. Right. Uh, Yeah. So we're going to spoil it. So if you're going to play it, do it now. And then (laughs) then come back and listen to this shit. And it'll be like, oh, yeah. Sick. Do do we want to get a little deeper into the um the episodes before we jumped into the fourth episode? Yeah, sure. Okay. So the first episode, House Abandoned. It's it's a haunted house text adventure game, but you're sitting in a chair playing it. At a certain point, things get dark and um I think the power goes out, power comes back on, the, the computer comes back on, but the game has changed and the game is a lot darker. Right. And it turns out you're in the house that's in the game sitting in the on the second floor it ends up being you you find out that it's your house or your your family's house right in the game if you type you know like enter house or open door you hear that as the character sitting in the chair so as you as you tell as, as you type in the text to you know walk up the stairs you can hear somebody walking up the stairs in the house right which is fourth wall breaking creepy as fuck Super cool, and basically it it ends with the character you're controlling, which is kind of the the guy that broke into the house or whatever, walking up behind you, and I think doesn't he kill him? Uh, or, yeah. Or, or the the chapter abruptly ends as you right. enter the room, something like that. Yeah, it's unclear, but yeah, just abruptly. Yeah. But it's super cool, fourth wall breaking. Kind of, um, I don't know, it, it's, it's just really unnerving once you realize that. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I love that it's the first chapter because it boots up and your frame of reference is a computer on a desk in front of you. You can uh-huh. look around a little bit, but you can't move. It's clear that you are a person at a desk, mm-hmm. but... The longer you play the game, the more that sort of fades into the background and you feel like right. you're just playing text adventure and then suddenly yeah. the game just fucking jars you and is like, no, guess what? There's a whole environment and shit's happening out there and you still can't move. Fuck you. Right, exactly. And I love really cool. that aspect. Yeah, super really cool. cool. Second chapter is called The Lab Conduct or The Lab Conduct. I don't know, fucking whatever that means. Anyways, um, you're sitting in a room getting instructions through like a PA you've got a stack of equipment in front of you and to your left you've got a computer that has instructions on how to operate the equipment right and so through the PA some doctors piping in instructions on what to do uh, there's some sort of artifact locked in like a safe and you have to run experiments to kind of analyze the artifact right. uh, like you run an x-ray to see it, there's a camera on top. You operate the camera in three different wavelengths. You shoot, I believe, like audio signals at it, like a sine wave, square wave, to see if it reacts, things like that. You end up drilling into it, and I believe the safe opens, and this artifact comes out, and it's sort of like a spherical, kind of like a like a mechanical alien life form or something like that. Right. With a, with a big eye on it, and it flashes at you. This alien life form comes out and starts... Communicating with you psychically if you stare into its eye. Right. And then your character sort of loses their agency and just starts kind of doing what the alien wants. And right. it 
kind of slowly becomes clear once again through the PA and some stuff you can see in the background that there uh-huh. are other alien life forms in this complex that you are accidentally setting up a network for them. <laughs> right, you're you're aiding them to escape. Right. <laughs> like so this this alien life form that is clearly above, you know, like you're definitely like out of your depth here. <laughs> yeah. It's it's it starts controlling you in a way and you end up aiding it, you know, whether you like it or not. Super yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's super cool. And once again, you're, you're, it seems like it's building on what happened in the previous one where it's like, well, there's a twist. Mm-hmm. And this one, it's really subtle, but it's also way scarier. Like by the end of it, you're just like, oh my God, I think aliens are taking over right now. <laughs> yeah. And, and plus, it's just super unnerving to like, you have to right click or something to like stare inside its eye. Right. And it's just like flashing red and blue at you. Like, pretty sure this game comes with, like, an epilepsy warning, just yeah, in case. it does. Uh, sort of hypnotic and fucked up. Right. Really interesting. And I love that it really plays into, I think one of the themes in this game that comes up over and over is control. Like, yeah, absolutely. The, the game is continually taking away control from you. And, you know, sometimes it's masking it behind, you know, something like, oh, you're at a retro computer playing text adventure. But this one, it just fully takes away your control. And it's Mm -hmm. like, no, you just have to do this thing. And there's even one point, like, there's a puzzle where, like, it's flashing symbols at you. uh And at first you don't understand, but then you realize that it's flashing symbols. The the symbols that it's flashing are, like, the solutions to, like, the next puzzle. Yeah, and I think that it's is really how this game is so effective as a piece of horror. That it keeps you in the dark. It keeps taking away control. It keeps subverting your expectations. It's really, really well done in that way. Like, it just keeps fucking with the player in a way that is pretty rare, you know? Super cool. Yeah, super cool. Because I think there's moments where you could almost look at this and be like, you know, is it horror or is it more just like a tense sci-fi or whatever? But then there's other moments where you're like, dude, this is fucking scary as fuck. Really unnerving. Really, really unnerving shit. Got under my skin for sure. Yeah, for sure. All right. So the the third chapter is called The Station Process. You're at a remote weather station. I think you're in like northern Greenland or something like that or island off Greenland. Right. Immediately, Immediately get John Carpenter the thing vibes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, totally. There are two other stations, but the microphone in your station is broken. Right. And I think you have some some critical hardware that the other stations don't have. So they still need you to uh, decode mess- radio messages. To your left, you have the microfiche machine. Yep. And in front of you, you've got a stack of radio gear. So the other stations will tell you to tune in to a uh, certain frequency. You, you'll get information from that frequency. Usually it's like a looped pattern of numbers and letters. And then you find the respective page in the microfiche machine, and then you translate that and pop into the computer and move on. Yeah, and it, it gets really stressful because essentially what you're hearing from the other stations is like a little radio drama about the end of the world. Yes, <laughs> and slowly, yeah. But while that's happening, you're decoding numbers and letters and then putting in these like code lines into a computer and it gets really stressful. I remember there was definitely a point where like towards the end where I had to when I when you go to the last page and you have to decode what the code phrase is. 
Yes. <laughs> and it's like one of those giant yes, no maps, you know, it's like, did you, did you wake up feeling happy today? Yes, no, you know, like that, but it's like huge and it's just really inscrutable. And I actually out loud, I was like, oh, fuck, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> it's, yeah. And I mean, it's a really good moment. A lot of kids that have played this one, they don't know what the fuck a microfiche machine is. They yeah. don't know what microfilm is. But at the same time, they probably never decoded Morse code. Yeah. And so, you know, there's one point you turn into a different frequency and it's just like a bunch of short and long beeps. I could see why that would confuse the shit out of a kid that grew up nowadays. Yeah, totally. I mean, even that took me a second because I was like, man, I don't know when the last time I thought about Morse code was, but right here's some Morse code. Like. I think that's another thing about the sort of retro aspect or the nostalgia aspect in this game is that they really committed to it. Like they put in so much shit and this really comprehensive where it's like, yeah, dude, you're really in it. Like it paints a picture for you. Yeah. And each chapter completely subverts your expectations. Right. I mean, like even with this one, you get into the flow of what you're supposed to do and it's just getting Mm -hmm. more and more tense and fucked up and you don't know how it's going to end, but you do get a feel for the gameplay loop. And then it's like, okay, go outside. It's like, wow, I can stand up and move now. What? (laughs) Which is throwing all your expectations out the window. And even at that, it's like, Everyone is like, don't go outside. Don't go outside. You're hearing just blaring sounds and wind and it's fucked up. And you're just like, dude, I do not want to go outside. And it's like, okay, go outside. Yep. (laughs) Stand up, go outside. And it's super fucked. Every way this game could subvert your expectations, it will. Right. Which is a great segue into the last. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which brings us to the last session. So this is, I mean, we already gave a spoiler warning a while back, but this is like the real ass spoiler zone. The gate is dropping on the spoiler zone. The twist to end all twists. Right. So this, this chapter opens up and... You're in a hospital and you are injured in some way. It opens with a shot showing you that the credit sequence that you've been seeing the whole game is actually the credit sequence from a tape that you're just watching over and over in like a lounge of like a recovery room in a hospital. And you get wheeled into a little room where you are having like a recorded therapy session with a doctor. And Mm -hmm. as the therapy session starts, you get thrown back into snippets of each of the three episodes that you already played. However, now they're all set up to slowly reveal clues about who you are and why you ended up in the hospital. So, and it, and it's in reverse order. So first you go to the third chapter and you are doing the same thing. You're decoding, you know, these number station transmissions and all that kind of stuff, except they're slowly revealing the details of a car crash right. uh, and somebody died in a car crash. And you're like, oh, that's that's kind of weird. Right. So on the microfiche machine, instead of decoding like government radio signals. It's a police report that details the car crash. And this, instead of having to input something like Morse code, you have to input the, you know, the case number or something like that. Right. And like the voices on the radio are different and they're really creepy. Um, mm-hmm. It's very unnerving. So then you get to the second chapter, which is in the lab, and you realize that you're actually laying on a stretcher 
like in a hospital. They're doing triage to try and keep you from yeah, dying. Yeah, you're in the operating table, right? Yeah, but you're doing the same puzzles, except now you are laying, yeah, on an operating table. Once again, very fucking unnerving. It ends with a drill going into your head to, uh, I presumably to release the water buildup so your head doesn't right. burst. Um, <laughs> and this, so this this also recontextualizes a bit the uh, the alien life form that you communicated with. It ends up looking like the surgery lights. Right. So then the last bit is actually the first episode. And in this one, you are just playing the text adventure again. Except Mm -hmm. it tells you through the details of the game what actually happened. And as it goes along, it gets more and more degraded and broken and fucked up. And it's really, really scary and unnerving. And it forces you to replay what happened on the night of the crash. I was saying to James in chat that I was like, I kept trying to be like, stop. No, don't do it. it. Don't fucking do it. And nothing happens, of course. But basically what happened is that you are you know, some early kid in his early 20s, you got mm-hmm. fucking drunk at a party and tried to drive your sister home, got in a car crash, killed her, and then framed the guy in the other car and right. somehow got away with it. Yeah. Your your dad gives you a bottle of whiskey as like a celebration because you're like leaving on a European trip or something. You drink too much whiskey. Take the bottle with you because you're a grown ass man in 1985. <laughs> yeah, right. Wreck your car. Kill, kill your sister. I, I don't know if you kill the other guy or not, but you put the bottle of whiskey in the other car. And then the cops show up and the red and blue lights are flashing, which is a throwback to the second chapter where the thing was psychically speaking to you through red and blue light. So it's the fourth chapter is going through and recontextualizing like every step of every other chapter. Right. So the haunted house is actually the house your parents lived in. You're in your room. Uh, Your sister's room was next door to you. And it during the spooky part of the first chapter, it was boarded shut. So there's all these little clues that are foreshadowing to what's truly going on in this game. Right. And the last bit of this chapter is that you are walking around the hospital with the alien life form, which is now just like your sister's, your conceptualization of your sister's ghost. And mm-hmm. she's just like telling you you're a piece of shit. Right. Yeah, which is really dark. Uh, I don't know if I needed that uh, when I played well, that. It's, but. It's, it's, it's very Silent Hill 2. He can't come to terms with his trauma and how he fucked up. Right. And then so, you know, the the last chapter is him finally coming to terms with what he did and facing it. And while it's too late to redeem himself, it's either that or just like shrivel up and die. So, yeah, it's super brutal. Holy hell, man. I felt really fucked up after super brutal, super interesting. We did talk about games that recontextualize everything only at the ending previously with Ethan Carter. Right. Uh, I think this does this. This does the same thing to even like a heavier degree. Right. Well, kind of like we were saying, I mean, this game subverts expectations so masterfully throughout that Mm -hmm. it's no surprise that the ending is such a is like such a crazy out of nowhere twist. Like I knew there was a twist at the end. So playing the game, I was kind of like in the back of my mind, like, I wonder what it is. They're trying to think of what it could be. And I had a few guesses and they were fucking not this. Let me say that. Totally. Yeah. Like I was not ready, but it's great, man. Like 
Wow. What a fucking story. I got to say. And it's interesting because I just played another game that we're going to talk about in the future, uh, Devotion. Mm. And yes, I loved Devotion. I thought Devotion was such a great family drama, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't have this kind of just like blunt force. I mean, the fucking blunt force of the ending of this game is not to be messed with. It's a real gut punch. Yeah, and I mean, it ends with the text parser, and it makes you type in like things like just acknowledging that you're a piece of shit. <laughs> and so like you don't want to do that. And you're like, like you said, you're like literally trying to fight against the text parser. So you make a better choice and you can't and you can't because it's already in the past. Yeah. Great stuff. Oh, so brutal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just so cool. Uh, the way, like you're saying, I mean, the way it's presented, the way that it introduces you to this presentation and then brings it back at the end in a new and twisted way. Um, mm-hmm. It's so cool. Uh, and I and I really loved it. And like I said, I think it really earns its presentation and its aesthetic. And yeah. it's just, it was just a really smart design and storytelling choice. Yeah, I mean, my, my only critique on the game is that it could have had a better theme song. <laughs> Hit me up, guys. <laughs> Hit me and Ollie up. Yeah, dude. I'll do Throw it. in some Yamaoka core. Oh, dude. I'm always down to make some more Yamaoka core. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Um, and it, it this game really blew me away. And I love I love the way it's presented. Um, yeah. Well, I, I suggested both of these games. Right. And I'm happy to know that I'm one for two. Well, <laughs> and Stories Untold was the one that you suggested that I I had heard of, but I didn't have any plans to play it. So mm. your recommendation, I was like, yeah. And then I was like super into it. Glass Staircase, I had already heard of and was already planning to play. So yeah. don't feel bad. Um, <laughs> you didn't make me play it. I was going to play it anyway. And uh, I was going to be let down and angry anyway. But yeah, I mean, I... I am interested still after everything, after all the wounds, (laughs) (laughs) I'm still interested in seeing this grow and develop as a style of making games. Um, I would be lying if I said that I didn't think of this years ago and want it to happen. Like I was like, man, I hope we get a whole wave of like first gen survival horror games, you know? Like, yeah, well, let's circle back on this because y- y- you were talking earlier about genres that just died off. Mm-hmm. Uh, survival horror is one. Especially um, what, that early, like, first wave survival horror. Like, yes. super dead. So what other genres that are super dead would you like to see come back? My, my first thought is car combat. What the fuck happened to Twisted Metal <laughs> and why can we not have another Twisted Metal game? Yeah, or another Vigilante 8. Give me that, dude. I want Vigilante <laughs> 9, bro. Give it to me. Speaking of 70s nostalgia. Yeah. Interstate 77. Yeah, Vigilante 8 was, yeah, they're both like fucking 70s retro. I love that shit, man. Give yeah. it to me. The terrible fucking like porno music that played the whole time. Love it. <laughs> Give it to me. I was always more of a Twisted Metal 2 kid. Yeah. No, Twisted Metal is good. I just like the aesthetic of... 
the the 70s one's better what about a uh, carmageddon do you play carmageddon yeah yeah that one actually had a reboot a couple years ago Oh, um, weird. It, it handles like shit. It's fun. During the 2016 election, they had like some like free DLC and it, it, it like turned all the NPCs in the game to either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Oh, no. So you can just like drive through the streets and like slaughter countless Donald Trumps and Hillary Clintons. <laughs> Super like tasteless and fantastic. Very 90s. Super 90s. And, you know, thumbs up for that because that was fucking stupid and great. I love stupid. <laughs> Um, I wish that game handled better because it would have been a lot of fun. The Carmageddon reboot. Yeah. It's just like driving a turd. Yeah, uh, for sure. I wanted better things from it. But yeah, bring bring back car combat. Yeah. Don't make it Battle Royale. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really like the, the weird PS1 action games, right? Mm. Like, there were just a lot of really weird PS1 action games that were kind of like... Metal Gear Solid definitely makes me think of that. Or like Winback, which was like kind of a weird Mm -hmm. Metal Gear Solid knockoff. There was like those great like robot ones. Like I think it was called like LA Cop or Future Cop or something Mm, like that. Future Cop LAPD. That's what yep. I'm thinking of. Stuff like that where they were basically just like kind of twin stick shooters but with the the jaggy graphics and just a kind of shitty drum and bass music and I would yeah. be down for that. Um I would love to see third person mech action come back. Oh yeah. You know, from software has made a lot of money lately. I'd love to see them take a risk on another armored core. Yeah. For sure. That would be great. One thing that's gone to are linear side scrollers. Every side scroller that comes out now is sort of a Metroidvania, uh, like fetch quest, back and forth kind of deal. There's nothing wrong with a linear stage based side scroller. No, I'm totally with you. I was going to say, like, the later Treasure Games developed stuff is interesting because. Like, how later? Like, Bangai O? Uh, yeah, thinking of, like, the, the Astro Boy game they did, and, like, the mm. the, the remake of Bangai O, and some of that stuff, like, the... Gunstar Superheroes. Gunstar Superheroes, um, the other GBA remake they did, uh, of that, like, RPG, action RPG one, um, Guardian Superheroes is what it's called. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot about Guardian Heroes. Yeah, like, those games got really interesting in that, you know, treasure games were always, like, a weird mishmash of genres, but they also started just having, like, mechanical mishmash, too, and just getting really, really crazy and over the top, and Mm -hmm. there's one game out on Steam right now that I cannot remember the name of that looks really cool and kind of like that, and is clearly inspired by that, that I really want to check out, but there's not a lot of people trying to do that. Yeah, it's... A lot more of people doing the kind of, like, Metroidvania. Like, yeah. that's very, very popular. Um, I, I did very much appreciate Cuphead with its throwbacks and love letters to treasure at every single step. Yeah, for sure. That was fantastic. Yeah, totally. I Yeah, just some of the, the stranger corners um, of gaming. But, yeah, definitely, like, horror games, you know, they were such a weird corner of gaming, but they weren't necessarily, like a cul-de-sac and mm-hmm. that's why I was always kind of like with the indie games like oh I hope someone does that you know yeah my, my fear with horror games now is that if they're not streamable they're not going to get made so we'll see um, I didn't think the glass staircase was very streamable but then I you know jumped on YouTube and saw a bunch of streamers playing it so maybe I'm just completely off base yeah I mean 
people stream anything, honestly. I don't really fuck with Twitch, so yeah. I don't know. I'm too yeah. old for that shit. Yeah, I'm not the audience, so I really can't speak to yeah. it. I, I hope that that isn't the case. I mean, I think that that was more of a thing a few years ago. I think now we're getting more substantial games that don't rely on a central gimmick or something like that. You know, right. like we're getting a lot of cool horror releases and they're not just like jump scare heavy or anything. If anything, I, I felt that the glass staircase almost veered a little too close to that with like the blown out jump scares and the kind of gimmicky facade and all that kind of stuff. With AAA games coming to like their own self-destruction in the near future, hopefully we'll see a resurgence of the PS1, PS2 era style experimentation with game design smaller teams meaning more focused artistry in games you know it's not um you know designed by committee kind of bullshit that we see with you know ea bioware ubisoft all this trash right um or maybe you know companies like ubisoft will break into smaller teams like they did with um grow home and grow up and let the artists kind of do the artist thing and make interesting things and take risks totally because i mean these companies really get locked into their own ways of doing things but whenever they Mm -hmm. take a big risk i mean a lot of times it pays off especially nowadays i mean people are so jaded after stuff like anthem and all these other botched releases that but at the same time you know ea put out anthem but then they also put out Unravel 1 and 2, which right. are great artistic games. You know, they do one thing and they do the one thing really well. Mm-hmm. You know, I I felt bad because I had to, like, install Origin on my computer to play Unravel, you know? Yeah. But EA owns that studio, and they let that studio do the thing. So, I don't know. Maybe that's the future of, like, AAA publishers, breaking these giant teams down into, you know, smaller studios and letting them take risks you know, while the AAA games, you know, are the, still the cash cows, use the AAA games as ATMs, you know, <laughs> to bring in all this capital, and then they can use the capital to experiment. Well, and there's a lot of talk right now about what AAA games are going to look like in a year, even, because there are so many concerns about labor, about the treatment of yeah. workers, and... Yeah. There's also don't play Mortal Kombat 11. Yeah, fuck that shit. Fuck those people, man. 100 hour work weeks, $12 an hour. Right. I mean, stealing ideas from QA players for fatalities and shit. Fuck that. Fuck you. Yeah. Well, and there's also like all these concerns about streaming and new platforms. And like nobody knows what this landscape is going to look like. But if anything, the big casualties, if there are going to be casualties, are. The AAA games looking the way they do right now. It sounds like they're going to go away, but it's they're going to be very different, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that even some of the big titles that are in development right now that people are just super, super horny for are going to be some of the tests of these new processes. Like a good example is the Final Fantasy VII remake is going to be episodic. Like, right. we know that. And it's going to come out eventually. And so even just looking at that, it's like, wow, people are going to really have to adjust their expectations of what they want from this particular title. And we, sure. and we know that even though it is years away from coming out, most likely. But I mean, Squaresoft leveraged its expectations 
for Final Fantasy 15, they, mm-hmm. they leveraged those expectations so high. You know, that game was in development for seven, eight years. They built a whole new engine around it. And I don't think it did that great. And the whole time, you know, Square's publishing all these other games like Tomb Raider and Hitman, and none of them are hitting their sales expectations. You know, they did the same thing with uh, Deus Ex, the third Deus Ex game. Yeah, right. And none of them are hitting the, the huge expectations that Square has for them. So, I mean, what's going to happen with this industry? Yeah. Um, you know, not every game can be Grand Theft Auto Five, like a billion-dollar franchise. That just keeps making money. What if Grand Theft Auto Six flops? You know, I mean, it's not going to. But, you know, if a billion-dollar IP flops... What, what, what does that mean? Thousands of jobs lost? The company shuts down because one game flops? Yeah. Do you want to leverage, like, an entire industry on, like, so few things? Yeah, it's like I said, I, I really feel like, and I think this is the conclusion a lot of people are coming to, is that this stuff is going to have to change. It's going to look really different. And what that actually means for the games itself and the consumers who look forward to these games, it's unknown, but... People's expectations, whether that's the company or gamers or the people who work mm-hmm. on these games, everyone's expectations are going to have to change. 2018 was the year of things being outrageously successful and then the company's stock dropping because they set their uh, their financial production way too fucking high. Right. I mean, even Nintendo, who is like riding high because everybody loves the Switch and is buying the Switch, took a huge hit because their project- their projections were just way too high. They were like, mm-hmm. it's going to be like 2.5 or 2.1 million, and then it's 1.8. And so they're like, oh, oops, not enough, you know? Same right. with Activision having a record year and then having massive layoffs because they didn't hit their financial projections. It's like, dude, you can't do it. You can't make that much money. That's a big difference between an Eastern company and a Western company, too. But they did uh, the same thing. They did the exact same thing, which is that they set right. their sales projections unreasonably mm-hmm. high, didn't hit them, and then they the company took a hit, which ultimately goes down to the workers. Right. The, the difference, though, is that uh, when a Nintendo thing flops, like when the Wii U flopped, the CEO took a 50% pay cut. Yeah, for sure. So that's the difference between cultures. You know, you don't throw the proletariat out on the street. You, the right. top down, there's a there's a, a shift top down. Oh, yeah. No, I'm definitely not comparing, like, the CEO of Nintendo to fucking Bobby Kotick, who's, like, a piece of shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm definitely not doing that. Or, like, even, yeah, I think it was EA. EA or Activision, one of the two. I mean, they were doing massive layoffs, but then they got a new CEO, and they were giving him, like, huge, massive, like, million-dollar bonuses as, like, yep. an enticement and... I mean, the whole thing is just out of whack. I think we sort of had the boom period uh, where you could work people to death, pay them nothing, and rake in the money. And now we're going to have the downslide where it's like, you can't do that. And whatever that means or how things are going to change, like, they just got to change. That's all there is to it. Yeah, I mean, what is that industry going to look like if developers unionize? These dudes, they're not working 40-hour weeks. No. You know, they're sacrificing their personal lives to make cute video games, you know? Imagine putting so much of it into your life of to, like, develop Anthem, and then it comes out and it's just, like, a giant fucking mess, and it's the laughing stock of the internet. Even beyond just, like, sort of being a human and thinking about the human cost of things... <laughs> 
just from a pure business perspective, it's not sustainable because they're losing people left and right to any other industry. I mean, sure. There's people who are just doing other tech jobs, which is the current trajectory for people who are successful, or they're just doing literally any other job just because it's like, I can't fucking do it. It's not sustainable. As video games become more like PC games, like everything just moves towards PC games, they're going to realize that the old model worked, like having expansions. Like, Mm, you know, people are willing to pay $20 for something that's really substantial. It's not a sequel. It's an expansion. It adds to the game. You have to make a bigger investment, but you get more. And if you don't want to pay more and experience more of the game, you don't. I mean, The Witcher 3, I will give it props for the way it was released was really good. And that's basically what they did, was that they were just releasing, like, DLC expansions, they put out a lot of them. They were very clear about what was in everything. And so they're basically like mini sequels. Right. And it's essentially if you want to keep playing this game a la carte, you can do it. If you want to wait a few years and just buy it all in the game of the year edition, you can do it. Like, yeah, it really was like a pretty progressive uh, way to do things. Um, But it's also very like PC. And that's once again, I think the companies that people are looking at and saying like, Oh, they're doing it the right way. It's all just fucking PC game style. Even yeah. like the company that so far, one of the few companies that people are saying, oh, they have good practices. Their employees are all taken care of, et cetera, et cetera. It is double fine. And that's Tim Schafer, who's been doing PC games since the dawn of fucking PC games, right? Right. Like PC games had the shit figured out. Consoles couldn't do it that way because they weren't connected to the internet. They weren't flexible at all. Now, mm-hmm. everything is always online. Everything is flexible. It's not a problem anymore. We're just going to move back towards that, in my opinion. I think that's just where sure. it's going. You know? Yeah, well-crafted single-player game. If it does well, sells a million copies, release an expansion for it six months later. Yeah, right. Why not? Or if it's a multiplayer game, it's like it comes out. It's well-supported. You stay on top of it. If you want people to pay for content, you actually make more content. Like mm-hmm. You don't just expect people to buy in and keep giving you money because they're interested in the potential of the game. And, you know, I was interested to see that. I mean, I think, you know, late 2018, early 2019, we had a bunch of big sort of test case releases that were like, oh, are people going to go for this? And the answer was no across the board. Like (laughs) the success, the success of certain games that came out broken and were fixed and redeemed later has not been replicated. Diablo three, no man's sky. These kind of games are ultimately going to be seen as like an aberration. They're not the norm. Fortnite is not the norm. You don't release a game that was pretty unremarkable release a new mode and it becomes the most popular game on earth. That's not a business model. That's an aberration, you know? Yeah. They got really lucky with that. Right. And I think ultimately people are figuring that out now where it's like, Oh shit. Like across the board, if you want to plan and have a business model, it's just going to be PC games. And yeah, Uh, I mean, mean, speaking of business models, they took that Fortnite money and just completely shook up the entire PC gaming industry. Right. Starting their own fucking store. Yeah. And saying fuck you to Steam. God, (laughs) how ballsy is that, man? Yeah, that shit is wacky. There hasn't been anything that's made me check out the Steam store yet, but I feel like it's You mean the Epic store? Or, I mean, sorry, yeah. Dude, all the free games. They keep throwing free games at everybody. Speaking of, um, Stories Untold is going to be the free game next month on the oh, Epic Store. Oh, shit. All right, listeners. So, go fucking get that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I got Edith French free on there. Um, 
I mean, a bunch of other shit. I haven't bought anything from the Epic Store, but I got all the free games from it. That's wild. Well, yeah. see, now now I'm going to go check it out. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, even for me, it's like I I use Steam. Just it's convenient. I mean, GOG is bay. Yeah. The only thing that Steam has really over other platforms right now, and this is a pretty niche thing that I haven't even seen anyone bring it up on the internet, is that uh, Steam has really, really good controller support. Absolutely. So yeah. they have their own controller emulator built into steam mm-hmm. that you can use like you would have used i don't know if you used to use old freeware ones um yeah like ds4 windows now that's all built in i use my dualshock 4 on pretty much any steam game right and so yeah like i have an xbox one controller just plugged mm-hmm. into my computer and like i play everything controller i hate yeah. keyboard and mouse actually i'm going to totally shoot my credibility here uh, forever. Oh, I'm the same way, and every time I say it on Reddit, I get like downvoted to hell. Yeah, but I'm I mean, a couch gamer. You know, I came from console games, and right, I'm you know I got my PC wedged behind my television, so and that's <laughs> how I play PC games. I mean, like I play them at a computer, but it's like my record my home like engineering setup, so yeah. it's very fucking comfortable. It's super nice and. For me, the two big things is that I work on a computer all day, so I don't want to work on a computer for games because it makes me feel like I'm still working, you know? Totally. And the other thing is that, like, uh, I mean, I have Carpal Tunnel, and I take care of it, so it's not a big deal, but I don't know. For some reason, playing games on a keyboard is way more stress on my wrist than, like, typing or doing Pro Tools or anything. Um, right. So, like, a controller is way, way, way more comfortable than me. And I've read other people on the internet say the same thing, so I know it's not me being crazy. So that, for me, like, like okay, Prey, for example. Uh, Prey mm-hmm. does not have built-in controller support. That was, like, my fucking game really? of the year. Yeah, that was, like, the best game I played last year. And Are you only- talking about the, the 2017 Prey? Yeah. It didn't have controller support? Well, it shipped with controller support. And then, like, they signed, like, some weird deal with Steam to use their controller support. So Stupid. It is stupid. I agree. It's, like, <laughs> it's weird. But anyway, the only way you can play that game with a controller is on Steam. That was, like, the best game I played last year. I fucking yeah. adore that game. and It's in the backlog. Well, I, like, hey, there's an episode on the list for that and Evil Within 2. It's going to be a fucking great episode because I'm just going to freaking go off about how I love those games. <laughs> no, it's going to be. I got to play both of those. Dude, they're so good. That was like the other best game I played last year. I feel like Prey for a lot of people is like Hitman for me. Like I keep telling people to play it and no one will fucking play it. I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to eventually, even before you recommended it to me, I saw some footage and I was like, that looks cool as hell. But that's such a, a specific thing that I don't usually go for. That me I ha- either. Yeah, I have to just. I be got it on there. a whim and fell in love. Yeah, when I'm there, when I'm in that moment where I'm like, "Oh yeah, give me that hit, man!" Like it's on. But <laughs> until that moment, you know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm elsewhere. But yeah, like I said, I did break up with Dark Souls. So oh, I'd you're wa- done with it. You didn't complete it. Hell no, motherfucker. What do I look like? I made a time. Fuck you. (laughs) How far did you get? Do you know how far in the game? Yeah, I played it for 30 hours, which is a lot of hours uh, for me. It's not for Dark Souls, but it is for me, a a human. (laughs) And I got, I would say, depending on how many side areas I was going to do, I got about 60 or 70% 
through the game. Did you just hit a skill wall where you got to a, a boss and you were like, fuck this, and just kind of checked out? Well, it, it's kind of funny. I got to a boss that is notoriously, notoriously difficult. Like, one of the hardest in the game. What happened was, it's, it's one of a few bosses where uh, you can summon, like, a helper. Because I'm playing offline. Yeah. Right. Um, and so you can summon, like, an NPC to help you, and you pretty much need the NPC to help you. And I came really close to beating the, this boss, like, multiple times. I was, like, getting to that point where I could easily go and beat it because I was learning mm-hmm. how to beat the boss the, the way you do with a Dark Souls boss. Sure. Um, but you need to be... You need humanity to summon the NPC. And oh. I ran out of my humanity, and so... The only way I was going to be able to keep trying the boss was either go farm humanity at this one place in the game, which I did, and it was super slow. Like, I did it forever, and I got, like, three. And the other way was to go and kill, like, a whole giant room packed full of dudes every time before I go and fight the boss. And I did both of those things. Yeah, I did both those things a few times. I got really close to beating the boss, but I just couldn't beat it yet. And I was just like, this boss also has a very long walk to it before you get to fight it, where you have to fight really difficult enemies. So it was like... Yeah. I call that the walk of shame, and it's in every fucking FromSoft game. They can never put you in front of the boss. You have to do the walk of shame before you can fucking battle him. Right, and it just got to be such a time commitment and all this shit that I was just like, nope, fuck it, I'm done. The other problem was that I ended up with a cursed save where I couldn't Oof. I couldn't stay the class that I wanted to be. Um, mm. Like, I was really good as, like, a like heavy sword pyromancer, right? Mm. But I had accidentally gotten rid of all of my ways to level up my pyromancy, either by answering questions wrong or accidentally aggroing NPCs. I hated the accidentally aggroing NPCs thing. Oh, it's the worst because the game auto saves and you can't load. Yeah. Ugh. And so I just ended up with a curse save that was going to be so cumbersome to keep going. And I was like, I just for my own mental health, I was like, nope, can't do it. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. I, I kind of broke up with Sekiro for similar reasons. Yeah. You know, you, you battle one super difficult boss for hours and you finally get past him. And then there's five minutes of regular gameplay and then you hit the next wall of the next super difficult boss. Right. And I don't know if I'm just, like, not in the right mindset this month or something, but I, would, I was just like, I'm fucking done right now. <laughs> I switched it off and started playing Yakuza again. Well, dude, it's... Man, this is actually a great conversation to have in this episode, because, like I was saying, both the games that we talked about have, like, that frustration element, and you can have a game that is hard and frustrating. Like, it can be sort of unfair and really dogging on you, the player, but if you if it's presented well enough... And it doesn't push you too far. It can still be fun and enjoyable and even weirdly, like, relaxing. But when a game pushes you too far and you hit that breaking point, you're just like, no, no, no. <laughs> and that's a bad feeling. That's It's really hard to come back from. Yeah, absolutely. I loved playing Dark Souls. I had so much fun. I got surprisingly good at it. Like, I didn't think I would actually be able to learn how to play the game, but I did. And... But I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'll ever play another FromSoft game knowing <laughs> that they're like that. Just because it's like, that really was bad. I really didn't like that feeling. Just getting your dick kicked in the dirt over and over again. Well, not that. Just like getting so... Just having all these other frustrations come into play. And sure. ending up 
with the game just like shitting on me that hard. Yeah. I was like, dude, why can you aggro NPCs? It sucks. Yeah, it's super annoying. And then you're cursed forever. Yeah, the cursed save in that game is real. I had a <laughs> super cursed save. I aggroed the Onion Knight. I uh, I aggroed or killed accidentally all the people who could level up my pyromancy. God, who didn't I fucking accidentally aggro? Ah, such a bummer, dude. Because I had so much fun. I really liked it. I feel too. It's like I think I started playing Dark Souls when I was on my like uh work vacation, my unintentional work vacation. Yeah. And that really helped where I was like, I don't have anything to do for mm-hmm. a week. And, and then it was like, oh yeah. And then going back to work, it's like, dude, I get my shit kicked in at work all day. Yeah. I don't want to then come home and it's like, what do I do for fun? Get my shit kicked in. Yeah, there was know? another thing. I couldn't play like Sekido after work because it takes like a sharp mind. And so yeah. like the only time I could play it is like Saturday mornings, you know, when I'm well rested and I can like, you know, like sit down and really like try. And by then it's been a week and then my skills gone down because like my motor reflexes are dead because you need such fast reflexes in those games to keep up. I mean like Sekido is like Dark Souls on fast forward. So yeah. And it's like during those times that you're talking about, I would much rather do something else like uh, eat a good meal or go for a walk. You know, it's like and also, I mean, the real Dark Souls for me is like being good at Pro Tools. (laughs) Um and also not regaining the, like, 200 pounds that I lost when I was in high school. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, I have to, like, go running, and I have to, like, uh, make music and shit. That's the real Dark Souls. So yeah. I have to, more than actually playing the game Dark Souls, I have to work on that. That's the real Steam achievement. Yeah, like, doing push-ups. Like, <laughs> god damn it! Yeah, getting enough sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to leave it at that. I stopped playing Dark Souls because I was doing less (laughs) push-ups. That's like the most bro shit I've ever heard from you. (laughs) Yeah, man. No, I I actually exercise kind of a lot. Good for you. Yeah, it is what it is. I'd rather be playing Dark Souls, but like I said. True. I ain't made of money. I can't keep buying pants. (laughs) (laughs) At least you won't die so often. 